It's been said that there are basically four stages in life. Obviously, there's childhood, followed by youth. Then there is young adulthood. And then finally, there is, my, you're looking well today. If we are privileged to live long enough, we'll experience and go through every one of those, uh, those phases. And the good thing about those categories is there's nothing specific about the ages, and so some we shoot through, some we may be able to hold off for a while. More importantly, just as there are stages in our lives and in family life, there are also stages of spiritual maturity or stages in the, in the Christian life. And John, whose letter we are studying in 1 John, takes a, a break from the instructions that he has been giving here in chapter 2, kind of pauses, perhaps realizing the intensity of all the things that he's writing, allowing people to take a breath and to catch up. I think even more importantly that he's wanting to encourage the people who are reading this letter uh, that they have no reason to despair, but actually have a lot of reason to hope. If you've been with us for the past several weeks when we've been looking at this letter, John has given us pretty significant instruction, some weighty things to consider, some measuring sticks as to whether or not we are Christian, but more importantly, to help us to understand what real Christianity is, authentic Christianity is, as compared to what was passing for Christianity in some circles in his day. It began to infiltrate even the church in Ephesus where he was writing, where he had once pastored. He was trying to bring that corrective. But with the intensity of what he was writing and even the tests that were given so that we can look and see where we stand in relation to the Lord, it seems as John is thinking to himself that while these are encouragements, it also could be reason for some to feel a level of despair. Because as we look at the test, we aren't given the answer key or the scale by which we're graded. So some people may look and realize, I have not scored perfectly. Have I scored well enough? John, not wanting to lose folks, his whole reason for writing is to encourage them. He stops in three verses here in chapter 2 to try to encourage them. He creates kind of a parenthetical, poetic explanation of the stages of the Christian life. As we look at these this morning, my hope is that we will realize the great encouragement that God has given to us through John, the great love that he has for you, who are his people. Clarity again of what it is to be a Christian. But also to encourage us in the stages of the Christian life that we would be a people committed to not just walking, or walking, not just wallowing, walking with him and growing in God's grace as we move through these stages. I'm going to take a moment to pray, and then I'm going to read verses 12 through 14. Let us study those together. Father, we give thanks to you that you have not left us to wonder You've not left us at the hands of people who are either confused or inclined to bring confusion. But time and again, 
you bring clarity and have declared and written for us and recorded for us the great benefits there are in Christ. As we take this time and commit ourselves to the studying of your word, I pray that you, in accordance with your promise, would bear fruit from it. That this word would not merely form our, our knowledge or puff us up theologically, but would speak to us and encourage us, granting courage where we are frightened, granting strength where we need to move on. That in all that we do, we would honor you. And that all that we would do, we would rest and trust in you. Father, you reminded us that we do not grow by eating or by bread alone. We are strengthened and we are renewed by every word that comes from you. My prayer is that now, as we study your word, you would strengthen us and you would renew us as well. We pray this in the name of Christ, who is the embodiment of your word. Amen. 1 John 2, beginning my reading in verse 12. I am writing to you, little children. Because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who was from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. The Lord bless the reading of his word. As we look at this passage that John is writing, we do see that there's a pattern that he, he gives. There's a repetitious pattern. He's writing to three categories, three allegorical stages of the Christian life. He's writing to children. He's writing to, essentially, to young adults. He says young men. He's then also writing to fathers or to those who are mature. And as he's writing these, he's giving us a picture of the benefits of being in Christ and the promises that belong to them. And we begin first with children, because that's where John begins and because where all things begin. The first stage of the Christian life is likened to be that of a child. And it's important for us to understand that this stage actually applies to all who are in Christ. John is writing to all the believers in the church, and actually if you look back a few verses in the beginning of chapter 2, and he's encouraging them, and he's interacting with them, and he's saying, he's calling all the people who are the recipients of this letter, my, my little children. And so it's, as we look at what John is writing here about the, the Christian life and being a child of God in the Christian life, realize that this is true for all who are believers. And so you who are believers we will try to encourage you to understand this. And you who are exploring Christianity to understand that this is the definitive mark between one who is seeking something and one who has entered into a relationship with the God of the Bible through the person of Jesus Christ. Now, what John seems to say here, if we take the two times that he's writing, because he writes about each stage and then he comes back to it, that there seems to be two 
primary characteristics of the stage. One is knowing that your sins are forgiven, and the other is knowing the Father. Knowing your sin is forgiven is a vital aspect of the Christian life. There's something in us that longs to know that what our mistakes have, have, have been put behind us, that what we have done that we can't undo will somehow not be counted against us. And we realize that in all of the scriptures, God doesn't take things lightly. John's not taking things lightly in this letter, and so several of the messages that we've seen so far, John's talked about the reality of sin and embracing the reality of sin that we have in our lives, and yet John is not wanting us to be overwhelmed, nor does God want us to be overwhelmed by the reality of that condition. There's something that's in all of us that wants to know that we can be forgiven. And John, as he's writing, saying the characteristic of the children who are in Christ is that they have the assurance that their sins have been forgiven in Christ. We have that assurance from John. We have that assurance through all of the promises of Scripture. I mean, John, just at the beginning, the first chapter, he himself writes, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so John has reminded us that if we just simply will acknowledge the reality of our sinfulness, as we repent of that, we're trusting in Christ. It's the context in which he's writing this. And our sins are forgiven. Not only forgiven, but we're cleansed from unrighteousness. This is not only John's message. It's not even only the message of the New Testament. It's the message of all of Scripture that's pointing to the fact that we, who belong to the Lord, can have the forgiveness of our sins. We find it throughout all of the scriptures. Think about Isaiah, what he writes in Isaiah 43. He says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sin no more. The picture Isaiah really parallels what John is saying because he's saying that our sins have been forgiven for his sake, for the sake of Christ, what he has done for us for his honor, to, uh, to demonstrate the merit of, of his death and resurrection. Isaiah was saying that years before, and the Lord was introducing himself and saying, I'm the one who blots out your sin. And I don't even think about it. We have this promise from the psalmist in Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. While it's a very old and sometimes dusty illustration, I don't want to neglect using it because there may be that some have not thought about it and others of us need to be reminded uh, a lot of the reality of what's being said here and even the significance perhaps of the fact that the language is choosing to use that he's removed your sins as far as the east is from the west. Personally, I would be very happy just to be told that my sins have been removed as far from me as the next county over. That would be fine, as long as I don't have to live with them. And then if you were to consider geography, which he's bringing into this illustration, uh, the, uh, the psalmist is bringing into this illustration, I'd be perfectly contented then to know that as far as the North Pole is from the South Pole, it's that far. I have no plans of visiting either. And so to know that my sins are that far removed. And yet the language here says it's not even the North and the South, which can be measured because of the poles. It's removed from the East, as far as the East is from the West. And we need to stop, and you may have heard this at times, whether in Sunday school or other, uh, other preaching, but we need to stop and just be amazed at the promise that's being made here. Because as far as the east is from the west is immeasurable. If you begin to travel east, how far will you need to go until you are now traveling west? 
See, with north and south, there are poles on this earth to tell, to tell you whether you're going north or whether you're going south. It's the orientation of the pole. There is no such thing from an east and west. They are infinite. And so when the promise of the psalmist, the Lord through the psalmist is saying, here's how far your sins have been removed from you. They're not the next county over. They're not even as far as one pole to the other. But your sins have been removed from you in an immeasurable distance, and they're being removed from you. They're nowhere near you. Consider this promise from the prophet Micah. It beautifully captures the character of the Lord. He writes this, Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? In other words, who is a God? What other God pardons the sin of his people? You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. And you will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all the iniquities into the depths of the sea. And the beautiful picture is something that we can get our minds around. Here's a picture of God who, recognizing your sin and my sin, he just takes them as if they can be embodied, and they were in the person of Christ, lays them down, puts them under his foot, crushes them, and picks them up and tosses the iniquity, the sin, into the sea. Adding to the mental picture that, uh, that the prophet is giving there, one thing that we need to see, even though he doesn't write it, is on the beach, that part of the sea, is a sign that says, no fishing allowed. See, the problem for some of us is we buy the idea that our sins have been forgiven, but we always go back to the things we've done in the past, and we keep gathering them back and feeling the weight of the guilt of things that have long been forgiven, things that have long been separated from us. The promise of John in this passage, the promise of all of the scriptures, those who belong to the Lord, John specifically saying, because they are in Christ, your sins have been forgiven. And you don't fish them out. There's an old story about the Moravians, when they first began to scatter around the world, when they first arrived in Alaska, wanting to share the good news of Jesus Christ with the Eskimos that they found there. And as they entered into their lives and began to live among them and tried to share the story, apparently in that culture at the time, there was no word for forgiveness. And so when they were trying to convey that in Christ we are forgiven of our sin, there was no word. And so they decided that they need to make a conjunction of concepts, words that created concepts that they could make up a word that would convey that. And so they came up with a, I'll call it a, a compound word that I would encourage you and see if you can work into your lunchtime conversations. The Moravians said this is the word that they came up with to convey what God has done for those who belong to Christ. It's isu, magi, jojunk, maynar, elk milk. My accent might get in the way there, but But what it literally means is what we've already seen promised by God. It means not able to remember anymore. John is writing to those who belong to Christ, those who are in the church. And he's saying, little children, I'm writing this to you. 
because your sins have been forgiven. And they are taken far from you. And they are remembered no more. John also says that there's something else that's characteristic of that stage of life. They have known the Father. So what he says as we look down below in verse 13, I write to you children because you know the Father. And this stage of life is characterized as one who recognizes God as a loving, involved being who has compassion and cares for those who belong to him. It's not marked by people who have great comprehension of who God is necessarily. None of us comprehend who God is and what he does. But they have this understanding, at least an understanding to distinguish between a God who loves, who is involved, who cares, from a God who is a cosmic provider, powerful, and makes things happen. It's still true about God. But simply having that concept of God doesn't draw anyone near, and it certainly does uh, damage or does, does God know service in, in thinking of him in that way. But John is saying, look, children, I'm writing to you because, think about it, you know the Father. You know God is one who cares for you, who provides for you, who loves you, who's involved in your life. The concept here of father is carried out elsewhere in the scriptures as well. An intimacy that sometimes makes us uncomfortable. An intimacy that Jesus almost got stoned for when he dared to say, this is the relationship that you have with God. Because Jesus says those who belong to him have the right to call God Abba which is translated sometimes as father, but more literally in our slang would be called daddy. There's an intimacy that those who belong to Jesus Christ have with God that they can call him daddy. And there is a great significance, even between as majestic and important as a father is, that is getting bad press and is a dying uh, role in our society, sadly, and that of a daddy. And I was never struck more than time I was serving as a youth minister when we were in seminary in Mississippi. We had a young lady that was in our church, she was 15 at the time. We've been blessed to continue to have a tremendous relationship with her. She'd had somewhat of a hard life, although in many ways a, a blessed life, but she had become blind, fully blind when she was two years old. Soon thereafter, her, her father left, leaving not only she and her mother, but uh, another younger brother. And so she was raised in a godly but a single mother home. And as we were doing a study, and I don't even remember what the topic of the study was, but the passage where Jesus was talking about the right to call, that we, the right we have to think of God as our, our daddy, she stopped and, and said that, that she had never seen before or thought about it, but there's a great significance, a great difference. I asked her what that difference was, and she said, well, I have a father. I don't have a daddy. And what she was conveying at that time is she knew that there was a guy that was out there that contributed to her having birth. Sent her Christmas cards, birthday cards, presents, 
periodically contributed to her growing up. What she did not have was a relationship with one who she knew cared so much that was going to invest himself fully in every aspect of her life. Now she's looking at God and realizing the promise of God to those who belong to him is not just somebody who is benevolent, but somebody who loves in a way that can be overwhelming, particularly if you are one who has grown up in the society where your father was either absent or anonymous, abusive. The whole concept here that John wants you to understand as a child of God is that you know intimate relationship with God the Father and are able to call him daddy. John is painting a beautiful picture here, and again, I want to go back to what I said to begin with. This is a picture for all who are in Christ. We never move beyond these things regardless of where we are in our maturity because these are important always. But I emphasize these. In a sense, I'm doing what John did. But he's taking a break from the intense teaching and saying, now stop and think about what is yours already? And I want to do that for you right now. Because John is saying, the emphasis here is not what you know. The emphasis is what is real for you who are in Christ. If you are in Christ, regardless of what you think you know, this is true of you. And John emphasizes that because it's not about what you've done. Not what Christ has done. This is done for his sake. But you are the beneficiaries. You are now children of God. And it's vitally important that we understand that and benefit from it. And understanding as children of God that even as we're encouraged to do, to continue to relate to God with childlike hearts, carefree, with great joy, happy. And I hope and my prayer is that we would maintain that. And it would be a legitimate point to stop here. I'm not going to because that's not the text, but it would be legitimate. This is the basic message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But John says there's more. Not more important, but there is more. He talks about some other stages, and it's important that we consider those for this very reason. We have a number of children wandering around during in-between services. We have been blessed over the past several months to have a number of children born into this congregation. One more, apparently, last night. Well, with the international dateline, it could have been like several weeks ago for all I know. But anyway, that's... Um, <laughs> but... And it's exciting. I keep referring to 2013 with a little bit of spillover as the, the year of the baby at, uh, at Grace Covenant. 2014 is shaping up as the year of the wedding, um, which then I hope becomes, again, another year of the baby. And I like that order better, but that's a whole other message. Um, wedding, then baby. But anyway. Um, and it's precious. And we're thankful for those of you who allow us to share in the joy of the birth, it's exciting to see them in the beauty of their newborn state. It's exciting when they begin kind of walking around, toddlers running around, escaping while they have nothing on but diapers. It's exciting to see children at every age. But here's a question, particularly for those of you who have these young children, the new babies. How cute will it be when your children are my children at age, college age, and they're still running around in diapers? 
See, there's something that's tragic, maybe even ugly, about arrested developments. Tragically, it happens, and we realize that, and in God's love, we come together and we encourage one another, but it's not what any of us want for our children. It's not what God wants for us either. As precious as our children are when they are young, or even if they never emotionally are able to develop, as precious and as special as that is, God says the normal course of life, the normal course of the spiritual life, the Christian life, is that we also grow. John says that there's another phase, and that phase he characterizes as, as, young, as young men or young adulthood. He said that's a phase that is characterized by a lot of, really a lot of activity, a lot of active service, and, and really, and his phrase is an engagement in battle with the enemy. We see it in the text in verse 13. I'm writing to you, uh, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And at the end of the uh, beginning of verse 14, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. <clears throat> Both of those kind of refer to activity and action and strength that are characteristic of this life. He's saying that there's, there's things that are, are taking place. Now, the characteristic uh, of this age, it seems to be that the young man is somebody who recognizes who and what he's up against in this world and then seems to recognize how to deal with it. It's vitally important we see what this young man sees because the text says that I'm writing to you because, uh, to the young man because you have overcome the evil one. It's a personalized embodiment person. It's called spiritual warfare, and John is declaring that these guys have been involved and have overcome the enemy, the evil one, Satan. Now, I realize in a lot of places that the idea of spiritual warfare seems very primitive. The idea of a particular evil one, even more so. Some have become so enlightened that they would declare, at least philosophically, they don't believe in evil in this world. John seems to disagree. John's declaring very clearly here, as Jesus does, as all the Scripture does, is that there is a living, breathing being who is bent on your difficulty and your destruction. And at this stage of the Christian life, John is saying that these guys, these folks are engaging. They recognize that he's up against an enemy, Satan. And they, they know what he's like. They know that he's a liar, he's a deceiver, he's a destroyer. They know that Satan never has a good day where he just says, you know, it's just so nice today. I'm going to just take the day off. Never has a day of compassion where he says, look, I've been, I've been pretty hard on these folks for a while. I think I'm just going to let up and pour my attention elsewhere. Scriptures describe him as one who is roving the earth, seeking who he may devour. He has one goal, he's got one intent, and that is to make you miserable and to destroy you. If you are already a believer, he cannot separate you from Christ, but he can pick you out of the game by frustration, desperation, depression, focusing your attentions elsewhere. And if you are one who is seeking in difficulties, he can make you ask questions such as, how can there be a God of love when there's so much evil in this world? 
diverting our attention from the promises of Christ to the circumstances that surround us. These young men are aware that Satan is real, and they're engaging him in battle, but I suspect that he's also aware of other things. There's a spiritual warfare that has different dimensions. And he's overcome the evil one, but he also has to discern that not everything in this life is of the evil one. Sometimes we have troubles in this life because of actions that we have engaged in, consequences. Sometimes we suffer because we live in a fallen world, and it's just life. And it's not spiritual warfare. But if they're going to be effective in overcoming the evil one, they have to be aware of discerning when they are engaged in battle with the evil one. Camper and I are in, involved in a debate that is an ongoing one, and for whatever reason, and then Ben says something I disagree with, it doesn't do much good to go attack Camper. It's probably a lousy illustration I just thought of. That's why you don't do this on the fly. But anyway, that's... Um, there's a point in there somewhere. Um, no. But they have to know who they're engaging. And they have to be aware of their own frailties, their own weaknesses, and what happens in life, as well as when there is a spiritual battle. Discernment is part of the ability to overcome. Part of the ability to overcome is to recognize in their own weakness, and that part of the spiritual battle is not necessarily an enemy that's with, uh, that is opposed to us, but the reality of sin that is within us. And way to overcome the evil one is to overcome sin in our own lives, and so they're engaging in battle in their own life that they would grow in purity, recognizing and acknowledging the sin in their life, seeing how it manifests itself, and then putting it to death. The theological word is mortifying their sin, that they may be set free from that. That's a commitment that they make in their life. There's no way to overcome the evil one if our own lives are following suit. But it's also recognizing that there is evil that is around us and that the, Satan has placed his stamp on all sorts of things that don't rightly belong to him. And it's a desire to engage in our community, in our world, and to recover for the sake of the glory of kingdom and the people who live in it, territory that truly belongs to the Lord. Engaging in spiritual battle to reclaim that which has been taken dealing with the evil in our culture and in our community. Overcoming it, not for the sake of overcoming it, but overcoming it for the sake of establishing the kingdom of Christ where the people who are affected are affected by grace, not punishment. And these men know how to deal with it because, as John says, in verse 14, I'm writing to you because you're strong, you've engaged, and the Word of God abides in you, or the Word of God lives in you. And they realize that the engagement that they're involved in is not something they can do on their own. Not in their own wisdom, not in their own strength. But they are in constant need of being fed God's Word being strengthened and built up, not only in head knowledge, but then it's alive in them. It's shaping their lives. One way that we know that we have moved from simple childhood to the second stage is when we hunger to study the Word of God, not simply so we can impress people with our knowledge of the Bible, because we know that the Word of God is at work in us, and it shapes us even as it strengthens us. Theologian John Stott said that it is the Word that is likely to be 
the very agency, agent, which is bringing them strength in order to engage and to overcome, both in their own lives and in the life, in, in the, wherever they're engaged in the community around them. And I think it's true because it's consistent with the, power, the, the promise of God's word. It doesn't come back without producing fruit. The word of God, when we are constantly feeding upon it, renews us and strengthens us. But sadly, some have started with that and they kind of get discouraged because, well, how much of it? We read it, you're engaged in a Bible study and you just don't necessarily see any change. I've had the privilege of coaching high school football in Tennessee and in Pennsylvania and one of the things that was always funny to me I never recognized when I was a freshman and going rising sophomore in high school, but all the freshmen and sophomores, uh, freshmen who were getting ready to be sophomores, come January when we reconvene the whole teams together and start the weight training program so that they can become strong and, and prepared for now the next step, which for them, which would be varsity competition. You see these guys coming in and just talking about how much weight they're going to lift or how much weight that they used to lift. That they did on those, there was nobody there, but they lifted all the, these weights, thousands of pounds while they're cranking out their 126-pound uh, bench press. The thing that's more funny than that, though, is that these guys who come in, and understandably, they're 15-year-old guys, they're 140, 150 pounds, this 140-pound physical specimen, after he works out, then goes, stands in front of the mirror, pops up. I mean, it's impressive. Some of these guys go from 140 to 141 pounds in three weeks. I mean, it's just the weightlifting is just, it's just amazing. And if they had any sense, they would be discouraged, but they're 15, 16-year-old boys, so the sense is irrelevant at that point of that. But it pertains to us when we are feeding on the Word because so often we get involved in a Bible study and we may have completed a study or a book or something, and then we kind of flex in front of the mirror and say, I don't see any difference. And some go on without any real hope, and others, understandably, just kind of say, it just doesn't seem to be working for me, and they give it up. The reality is for the high school athlete, just as for us as Christians, is the effect of the work will be evident over time, not usually immediately. But if you continue, whether it is in their strength program or in feeding on the Word of God, you will be strengthened. You will be prepared. You will be changed. That's what these young men apparently have learned, and they had been strengthened as they feed on the Word, and they are capable, and it is true for us as well. I had another illustration, another point for the young man I was hoping to use. I didn't have time in the first service. I don't know why I assumed I would in the second service, so I'm going to bypass it, so we'll come back to it some other time, because there's also a danger. This is also a stage in life, we see it in our teenagers, where foolishness comes in, and sometimes there is more bravado than there is um, reality. We need to realize that as well in our spiritual lives. Not proud of ourselves, but just trusting in the one who is at work in us. But there's also a final stage. The final stage that John refers to is the fathers here. It's interesting because as he writes in each one, he writes twice and gives two instructions or two Two encouragements. And to the fathers, he writes this. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And then he comes back the second time and he says, I'm writing write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. 
It's interesting because the others have some distinctions. A little bit of overlap in the young men, but there is distinct encouragements. But to the fathers, he only has one thing to say. And it's so important that he repeats it. And I think it tells us that it is the thing that is of most importance. And it's what we aspire to and what I think that in one sense we long for, even whether we believe we'll ever achieve it or not. It's a life that is characterized by a peace of simply having such an intimacy with God the Father that it changes our whole outlook. The word to know here is not simply an acquaintance. The word is, really conveys the union. It is an intimacy. It become one. There's a fellowship that the person at this stage in their spiritual maturity has that they are in true experiencing the communion with God that has changed everything about them. They begin to be shaped by God's character. They begin to think God's thoughts. There's great wisdom and depth that goes with it. Many of you probably know people who are like this. Some of you are blessed to have grandparents or parents that may fit into this category. When you talk with some of those people, they talk slow. You ask them a question that you think is a simple question, you don't get a quick answer. You get a pensive moment, chosen words. Because people in this stage have become so close in the relationship with God, they realize there is great significance in the questions that we ask are far more pregnant than what we even assume when we ask them. They just know more about God. They do not become gods, but they are shaped through this relationship so that they seem to be unwavering. Whatever's going on around them, they continue to have peace and they exude joy. Whenever you ask them questions, they pass out not only wisdom, but a sense of compassion and you can feel it. The problem that I see with the stage is not the stage itself, but as some of us see it. Again, some of you, I hope most of you know somebody who falls into this category. It may be that you look at that person in your life and say, I love them. I wish I could be like them, but I will never be like them. One thing we need to note is John is writing this to remind us of the promises of what God is doing in his people when we are committed to the unity, the union we have with him, to the fellowship with him, and what he does when we are committed to growing in his grace. Now, some of us won't live long enough. I don't know how long that it takes, but some of you, but we need to understand, John is not writing here rank. Some of you have been in the military. As if there's a cap. You will reach so high and no higher. You just don't have what it takes. John is describing characteristics of life, not qualifications. He's not talking about offices. He's talking about experience. And there is no limitation. This is possible for all who are in Christ, who are committed to the fellowship with Christ, hungering for his word, wise in your engagements, and realizing that above all the things we may accomplish in this world, there is nothing that is more important 
in the fellowship we have with God. That's the apex. And that is available to all. And when we realize that, and when we walk with the Lord, over time, we begin to see that reality borne out in life. I say that with hope of many biographies that I've read, not from one who is anywhere near close to that stage. Some of you are there, and you should have actually done this last point, but I didn't think of that until just now either. But my point to all of us is be encouraged because that's what John is writing here. Don't get weighed down as if there is a command. Hear what John is saying. This is true of you because of him. May we be people who rest in him. May we be a people who encourage one another to remember his promises so that we may, even as Paul prays, for all reach full maturity in Christ Jesus. I'm going to pray and then camp will come lead us at the table. Father, we give thanks to you the great benefits that you have given to us in the person of Jesus. I pray that we would not take these for granted, nor will we allow ourselves to be frustrated when we have not achieved what we would like to achieve, but that we would remember that the basis of all things is your grace, which is extended to us, cannot be exhausted. Father, turn our eyes to you. Turn our hearts to you that we may enjoy the fellowship with you at whatever stage we are in in our pilgrimage. We pray this to your glory and to the joy that is offered for us in the name of Jesus.